0: It's a pleasure being here with you guys on this holiday weekend, and I do, I do feel at home. So um, Matt sent me uh, this slide here and told me you guys are going through the book of Mark, and so I'm going to just try continue, and we're in Mark 6 today. Um, and I, I love what this slide says here, um, it's sort of summing up Mark 1 to 8. It says, the king is here, and his name is... Is Jesus, And that's just a perfect summary of what you get not only in Mark, but really what you get in the Gospels. That was what Jesus was all about while he was on earth. Uh, In fact, the very first words you have of Jesus in Mark 1, Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, and so repent and believe. Uh, And so right away, Jesus in Mark 1 is proclaiming the message, I'm Jesus, and I am the king that you are waiting for. And one of the things I want to just clarify as we go forward is that when when we think of Jesus as a king, his name is Jesus, um, there's different ways that that is proclaimed through the gospel. So this is just a little maybe helpful tip as you're reading the Bible for yourself, whether you're reading Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, when you come across different Ways that that message is proclaimed, it's all saying the same thing. So sometimes the gospel writers will say that Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Those are the same thing. Other times it'll say he was proclaiming the gospel. Same thing. Other times it says the good news. Other times it says the message of repentance. Um, and sometimes I think we overcomplicate our reading of scripture and we see all, see all these different things and we think they're different, nuanced ways of saying something different. But it's really all boiling down to one thing, and that is. the message that the king of God's kingdom is here on earth, and he's bringing that kingdom to earth, and he's inviting us to be a part of it. And there's different ways that that is expressed in the Gospels. And so that's important to remember as we go into our passage today, because like that slide that Matt sent me, uh, that's been the message of Mark. Uh, Jesus has been proclaiming himself as the king. He's been healing people. He's been teaching people, doing all sorts of miracles. He's been having conversations along the way with people. Uh, He's been sharing stories, which we refer to now as parables. But basically, all those things, in everything Jesus was doing, he was pointing to the fact that he is the Messiah everyone was waiting for. He is the king who is making a new kingdom. Now, the really interesting thing uh, that we're in in this passage in Mark that we're going to be looking at is the fact that in the midst of this time Jesus's popularity is rising to the height of his popularity during his earthly ministry and this is true not only in Mark but you you see it confirmed by the other gospels that during this time of his life Jesus was very popular with uh, the common people of the day that he was ministering to so Mark 128 says his fame spread everywhere in the region of Galilee and so for the most part the three- years. Jesus ministered on earth was mostly in this region of Galilee. And there's a little snapshot of some of the things he did well in Galilee. Mark 2 uh, says that Jesus was gaining such popularity that when he was in a home, the home was so crowded with people that some friends who brought their paralytic friend to Jesus, wanting him to be healed, couldn't get to Jesus. So what did they do? You know the story ripped through a roof in order to get to Jesus. You know, Jesus had this like rock star status that people needed to rip roofs off in order to get their friend to Jesus. And that rock star status continues in Mark 3. Crowds were so intense, we're told, that while Jesus was trying to teach them, he actually feared that the crowds might crush him. And so what did he do? He he found a boat, Peter's boat. And he said, Peter, can you push out in the water? I'm going to use your boat as a platform to teach these people because the gospel says, right in the gospel, you can look for it yourself in Mark 3, the people were crushing in on him and he had to step out into the lake on a boat for this platform. So what we see is Jesus was getting very, very popular. Crowds were flocking to him, wanting to hear his message, wanting to touch Jesus and be healed by Jesus and be set free by the king who was Jesus, bringing the kingdom of God. Now, uh, we also have to be Honest with what Scripture tells us, there were a couple other instances, actually, right before the passage we're going to look at today, where Jesus wasn't as popular with some. Uh, one of the places it, it calls it Gergessa here, or in, in other places, it's called Gerasenes. But that is when Jesus went across on the Sea of Galilee, and there was a guy coming out of the caves, cutting himself, and he was demon possessed and in a, in a horrible state. And Jesus cast out uh, the demons from him into a group of pigs. The pigs ran into the lake, and the people of the village were frightened by that. And so they said to Jesus, get out of our region and don't come back. And so Jesus wasn't always accepted. Sometimes he was rejected. And then right before the passage we're about to read, at the beginning of Mark 6, one of the interesting things is Jesus went to his hometown in Nazareth, which is down here. So this is where Jesus grew up. Uh, Not not a huge place, and so most people would have known Jesus. He was the carpenter's son, Uh, and he comes back to Nazareth, and we're told in the beginning of Mark 6 and in other Gospels that they rejected him. And they did not accept him in his hometown. Interesting thing to note there as well is that the gospel tells us that because they did not believe in Jesus, he did very few miracles. He maybe healed a couple people and then moved on. And so we see this very close connection to belief and faith and the expression of miracles through Jesus. And I, I believe that's true today. And we see that in Nazareth. And so Jesus is rejected in a couple instances in Mark. But for the most part, we have to understand that the context of our passage that we're about to read together is that he is at the height and the growing height of his popularity. The common people, for the most part, love Jesus, they're interested by his teaching, and they want more of him. And so they're flocking towards Jesus, and in fact, we're going to see in this passage that his popularity continues to grow. And it's important to remember this for the context of our passage, because it's a bit of a weird passage. When Matt first sent this to me, I said, what are you doing to me? You know, this is such a disjointed passage, because it's what I call a sandwich passage. And the first few verses are talking about the sending out of disciples. And so Jesus sends out the twelve to go on this mission. And then the very last verse we're going to read is the disciples coming back. And so it's like two pieces of bread that go together. They're the same thing, right? They're related. Uh, They're sent out. They're coming back. Okay, those two things should go together. But what Mark does is right in the middle of this, he puts in this story about John the Baptist being beheaded by Herod. And it just feels strange when you first read it, that the disciples are sent out, they come back, and right in the middle, Mark sort of throws in this story about John the Baptist getting beheaded. And it seems disjointed until you remember the context. Because in this context, I believe Mark is very purposely adding this story in order to communicate something very specific to his disciples, uh, well, to the people who would be reading Mark, and to us who continue to read Mark. And what he's getting at is the difference of popular mission and unpopular mission that were called on this mission both when it's popular end when it's unpopular. We're going to unpack that through our time together. So let's just jump into this passage in Mark 6. Um, I don't know what you usually read here. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. So it's a fairly simple translation. If you have your Bibles, you can read along. I I didn't throw it on the screen for us. So you can just listen if you you don't have a Bible to read along with. So we're going to read from Mark 6, starting at the second half of verse 6 and reading to verse 30. So this is Mark 6, starting at verse 6. And this is right after Jesus has left Nazareth because of their unbelief in him. And then it says, From Nazareth, Jesus went about to the villages, teaching everywhere he went. And then he called the twelve disciples, and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the clean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not, put, and not to put on two tunics. So just the clothes they were wearing basically and a staff is what they were sent out with. And then he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place. And if in any place they will not receive you, and will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. We're we're actually not going to get into that little section here just because there's enough other stuff. So I just want to make a quick comment on that about shaking the dust off our feet. And I just encourage you to do some thinking on your own there as I know your ministry here is based on missional communities moving into a place and really getting to know people, getting into the rough parts and every part of their lives, living life with them. And I'd love you to think about these, these words and in groups later maybe talk about how do we take this command of Jesus about when people aren't listening to you, shake the dust off your feet and move on. And what does that mean in a missional community when you're living life with people, you're serving people, you're walking with them through thick and thin? How does that relate to good soil, bad soil? What does it look like as you're living life with people, that command? We're actually not going to get into that this morning, but there's something there for you to think about because there is something about being able to walk with people graciously through everything, and yet also recognizing when there's a place you really need to focus and there's other places you need to put on hold because it's just not fruitful at the moment. And that takes wisdom and discernment. So something to think about later. Let's keep going with this passage. So they went out, the disciples went out, and they proclaimed that people should repent of their sins. And they cast out many demons, they anointed people with oil, and the people who were sick were healed. And now we get to this story of King Herod John the Baptist. Now King Herod, interesting note here as well, King Herod called himself king. This is uh, Herod the Tetrarch, not Herod the Great. Uh, He never actually was given... The title king by the Romans who appointed him in Galilee. He actually asked them for the title because his brother got that title in another region and they said no. And they were sort of always sticking it to Herod and not letting him be the king of the Jews like he wanted. But King Herod refers to himself as the king of the Jews. And it's like Mark is almost sort of sticking it to Herod here by calling him King Herod, but he wasn't actually a king. And we need to just sort of keep that in our minds as well. So King Herod heard about Jesus and heard his name um, and it became known to him. And some said about Jesus, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, No, he is Elijah. And others said, He is another prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of Jesus, he said, Surely this is John whom I beheaded, and he has been raised from the dead. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So try to get your head around that. His brother was married to this lady. He went to visit her, history tells us, and and his brother ended ended up lusting and falling in love with her, took her as his own wife. So create some tension in the family when stuff like that happens. Well, what did John have to say about this? John kept saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's not a good thing. Now, Herodias, the wife, had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death, but she could not because Herod was protecting him. Herod feared John the Baptist because he knew that he was a righteous and holy man. Very interesting. Herod feared John the Baptist because he knew he was righteous and holy, and so he kept him safe in prison, mind you. And when he heard him, so Herod would go to prison and hear John the Baptist, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So very interesting dynamics going on. But then an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you, up to half my kingdom. By the way, remember, he's not a king. He can't give away half his kingdom. So it's sort of an empty promise anyways, because it's actually Rome's kingdom. But he makes the promise anyways, in front of all his guests. And so she went out to her mother, who has this grudge against John the Baptist, and said, What should I ask, mother? And the mother says, Ask for the head of John the Baptist. She came back immediately with haste to the king, Herod, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on the platter. Remember, Herod was trying to protect John the Baptist from Herodias. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his, his oaths and his guess, he did not want to break his word to her. I would say probably more because of his pride not wanting to be embarrassed in front of all his military men and everyone else. He made this promise in front of them, so he's going to keep it. And so he brings in the executioner with the order to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples, that is John the Baptist's disciples, heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And then the apostles, Jesus' twelve, returned to Jesus and told him, all that they had done and taught. That's God's Word. Let's just pray that as we explore this, um, that the Holy Spirit would just open our minds to what this means for us. Father, we have read your Word, which you tell us is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, that is useful for instruction and correction and even rebuking. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and move through me and move in each one of our minds and hearts So that this morning as we unpack this a little bit, Lord, this 2,000-year-old document that would come alive in our lives today, that it would change and transform us so that we may live as followers of Jesus here in Guelph and Acton, wherever we are going off to school, Lord, that we would live as followers of the King for the kingdom of God. We pray this in Jesus' name and trust it will be so. In Jesus' name, amen. So the disciples, first few verses, sent out on this mission. First thing we need to understand, we're sent out on the same mission. Uh, it, it's the same thing. This was training ground for the disciples. They were sent out and returned, but later, after Jesus' death and resurrection, they were sent out full time on this mission. And it's the same mission that we are continued to be sent out into today to live this mission out in Guelph and wherever we go. And so, today, I want to look at this mission in in three categories: the character of the mission, the content of the mission, and the expectations we have about that mission. Understanding that the mission we're looking looking at in this small context of the 12 going out really is is a mirror image of the mission we're all living today 2000 years later we're continuing so let's start by looking at the character of the mission or you might prefer to think of it as the nature of the mission sort of what defines This mission that the disciples were on and that we were on. And there's a few parts to this, starting with what I would say is the most important thing to understand about mission. As we talk about being missional people, going out on mission, the first thing we have to understand is it's not primarily our mission. It's Jesus' mission. The mission we are sent on is an extension of Jesus' mission and his authority and his power. We see this in verse 6. It says Jesus was teaching among the villages. Then verse 7, he sends his disciples out to the villages. And very important, it notes there that he gives them his authority over demonic spirits as he sends them out. So it's Jesus' mission that he's already on. It's Jesus' power that he's already working in the midst of his ministry. And he says to the disciples, I don't give you a new mission. I don't give you some separate power of your own. I invite you into the mission that I'm already on. And I give you my power and my authority to live the life that I've called you to live. And it's the same for us today. In Matthew 28, the Great Commission, which I'm sure a lot of you know well, Jesus begins by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, he says, because I have all that authority, I send you out to make disciples of every nation, baptizing them and teaching them to follow all that I have commanded you. So it's just something very simple I want you guys to get from this. As you minister in Guelph, I want you to know that you should never be timid about the mission you have here in Guelph. You should never say, I can't do it. You should never say, it's impossible, or I'm not equipped, or I don't have what it takes. You should always look to Jesus and say, it's his mission. He's already working here in Guelph. He's already working in the ward and in the other places that you guys are multiplying to. Jesus is already there by his Holy Spirit at work. And then he's given you his Holy Spirit to dwell within you. He says, all power and authority are yours. Go. Join me on the mission. I'm already at work. Just join me. You have everything you need to do what I call you to do. So don't be timid. Don't look at the huge mission field of Guelph and say we can't. Always say we can because it's Jesus's mission and it's his authority and power that we live by. Now, a few other things about the character and nature of this mission. One of the interesting things, one of my favorite things about the gospel, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, that, it, that they do for us, is it gives us really the, the nitty-gritty of how Jesus lived his life. It showed us what he was like as he walked on this earth. Rather than just telling us concepts about God, we get to see a picture of how God in human flesh got to walk and interact with people on this earth. And that's very important when it comes to how we live our mission today, because there's a few key characteristics that come out when we look at the life of Jesus, how he lived it. Uh, And the two things I want to look at today is that he lived humbly and that he lived dependently. Now, Jesus, the Son of God, fully God, but he was fully man as well, He was a miracle worker. We have that attested to us, not only in the Bible, but other historical documents from that time period, like Josephus and others say there's this guy, Jesus, who works these incredible miracles. And word of him was spreading. We're also told he was an authoritative and powerful teacher in the Gospels. People exclaim that he doesn't teach like the scribes and the other teachers, but he teaches with authority. There's an authority he had in the way he taught. So, in some ways, you would say Jesus is a very powerful figure in his day in that sense because of his working of miracles and his teaching. And yet, over and over in the gospels, in the way that Jesus functioned and the way he lived, we see a humble servant of all, and we see someone totally dependent on the Spirit. Jesus said, I didn't come to serve, I came to I I didn't come to be served, I came to serve, I came to wash feet, I came to ultimately lay my life down. Uh, We also see over and over in the Gospels, Jesus seeking his Father out and saying, I only do what my Father tells me to do. I don't do anything on my own. He sought the power of the Spirit to fill him. There's times in, in, in the Gospels where it says that the Spirit was there or the power was in Jesus to heal which seems to imply there was other times where the power wasn't present in the same way, which is a really interesting thing to think about. Someone who's fully man and fully God, he was dependent on the Holy Spirit to live the life that he was called to live and the mission he was given by the Father to live out on this earth. He was a humble servant and he was dependent on the Spirit. And when we look at this little passage we read in Mark, I think it's modeled for us in the instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples. First of all, he he gives them a simple instruction to go out two by two. Simple reminder to us as we go out on mission, it's not a solo adventure. It's something we do with one another. It's something we do in partnership, in community, and communities partnering with communities. I've, I've loved getting to know Matt, and one of the things Matt and I have talked about is how can this little church in Acton and, and this missional community church here in, in, in Guelph, where am I, Guelph, how can we work together, how can we partner, how can we support one another? And so Matt and his wife are going to be joining me in a network of other church planners and new ventures just saying, how can we, different churches, different little eclectic groups, work together for the kingdom of God? It's not a solo adventure for a person or for any local church. It is something to be done in partnership and in community. Now, this two-by-two thing in their context, because they were ministering largely to Jewish people in their context, this was very important because Jewish law says that when you're a witness of something, you need at least two or three people to give credible witness. So this was very practical on Jesus' side of things. He, He was sending them out by two because he knew they were giving witness to him in the kingdom, And so there was two witnesses needed. So this was just a practical thing. But it's common sense for us today as well. If you have a witness to an accident, if you have a witness to something that happened, what is the more credible witness when two people agree or when there's just one telling their own story? If there's two people agreeing, that that usually is the more credible witness. Not to say that one person can't be credible or one person can't give a right testimony as well. And yet, even today, we we just know that when there's two or three agreeing on something, there's a credibility and a power that goes along with that. King Solomon talked about that in Ecclesiastes, where he said two are better than one. And I don't know if you've you've heard of that phrase, um, the sum, what is it again, greater than the sum of the parts? Uh, And it's sort of this idea that, say, you have two horses, and this horse can pull a thousand pounds, and this horse can pull a thousand pounds, and so you would think, put them together, they'd be able to pull two thousand pounds together. But what actually ends up happening when you combine two horses that know how to pull together, they'll actually pull greater than the sum of their two parts. I think it's the same in community. When local churches who are really good, this local church is really good at this, and this local church is good at this, instead of being parallel with each other and just doing our own thing, what if we started coming together and working in partnership? What about people instead of saying, well, I'm going to do my mission in my life on my own, what if we started bringing people into our lives and saying, we're going to do this together. Uh, We're going to see greater than the sum of our separate parts when we do life together. So Jesus sends them out Two by two. Then he moves on to some really interesting instructions. Verses 8 to 10. Jesus instructs them to take nothing along with them. No money, no food, no extra tunic. He says, just take the clothes on your back. And he says, take a staff. And so the question is, why does he say specifically take a staff? uh, And why does he say take no provisions like money and food that most people would take along with them on a trip? Uh, Let's start with the staff, because it's a fairly interesting one, that I I think there's some uh, symbolism behind a staff, because I think what Jesus is referring to is a little bit more than just a walking stick, though some may disagree with me and say, oh, it was just a walking stick, don't dig into this too much, but when you look at the Old Testament, think of Moses, think of Aaron specifically, do you remember how God used their staff in order to do miracles, in order to display his power? When Moses was saying to God, like, I have no power, I have no ability, what did God say to him? He said, Moses, look at the staff in your hand. And he said, throw it on the ground. It becomes a snake. And all these different miracles started being expressed through the staff to the point when Aaron's staff budded. I don't know if you remember that story from the Old Testament when there was an argument amongst who's the real leaders. And and God said, well, everyone put their staffs in because staffs were sort of the symbol of leadership. And Aaron's staff budded. And it was kept in the holy place, or the holy of holies, as a symbol of God's authority and a symbol of Aaron and his descendants' leadership in the Jewish ranks. And so I think there's something specific going on here that Jesus specifically mentions a staff and says, take a staff with you. By the way, I'm giving you authority to go and cast out demons and do miracles and take a staff with you as a reminder of that. It's like as the disciples walked along, they could look at that staff. It was a tangible reminder, just like communion for us is a tangible reminder of what Jesus did for us. They had this staff in their hand, saying, God's authority and his power is with me. I can do this. That's what I think is going on with the staff. But then maybe the more interesting thing here is why Jesus tells them not to take any provisions. Wouldn't it just be common sense to take some food for the journey, to take some money in case they needed somewhere to sleep, or, or, or they just had what they needed on their own, and yet Jesus specifically says not to? Another interesting thing is there's another passage in Luke, right before Jesus is crucified, where Jesus tells them the opposite. He says, take money, take food, take extra supplies. In fact, take swords, because things are going to get bad. And so why in this instance is God, is Jesus saying, don't take any provisions? And I actually think it's quite simple, and it has to do with dependence. It's a symbol that they went not in their own power, but in complete dependence on God. But I I think the real interesting part, because we all know we're supposed to be dependent on God. Here's the really interesting thing that Jesus did to his disciples. He made them dependent on the people they were going to minister to right? So they were going to all these villages where they did not know people to minister to them, to bring the gospel, to proclaim repentance, to give them the gift of healing that Jesus had given them the authority to give. And yet Jesus strips them of everything they need for themselves and says, go and be dependent on the people you're ministering to. In a way, Jesus is posturing them to come to these people and say, we're like you. We're people in need in the flesh and what we're bringing to you isn't because we're special or somehow got it all together. We're bringing to you what we've been given, the gift that God has given to you, a gift of grace. And Jesus sort of puts them in this position of dependence so that they go humbly in a posture of humility to the very people that they're ministering to. And they're going with the authority of Jesus, but not because they're better than the people they're ministering to um, and it's like Jesus sort of took the disciples. And even though they're bringing these people this amazing gift, he places them into the hands of the people they're going to. Into their care. Into, it's sort of up to them whether they're going to provide for the disciples or not. And this is an important thing for us to remember. That on one hand, we have the authority of Jesus. Like I said, you shouldn't be timid on your mission. You should go all out with the mission that jesus has given you he has given you the message of life itself life and life to the full and we need to go boldly and bring that to people and yet even as we go boldly to bring it to people we need to go humbly to serve them and we don't bring it as people who are better than them we come as servants to serve them and say we're just like you but we're bringing you a gift and we see this over and over in jesus's life The way that Jesus walked and talked with people was always in a posture of humility. He hung out with the people that the leaders of the day said you shouldn't be hanging out with. He went to parties that they said you shouldn't be at. He did all the things that the religious of the day said you shouldn't do that. Jesus was a humble man coming to serve others. God coming to earth in order to bring salvation. And this is the model we should follow. I heard a story... Years ago, I can't remember, I think it was in a book I read. And it was a story about these these captives, and I forget what country, but they were held by terrorists in in a a cave-like prison, and they were there for two or three years. They were never let out of that dark, damp cave. They were given just enough food to live on. The only time they had human interaction with anyone from the outside is when their captors came in to, to hurt them or mock them or terrorize them. Okay, So if you can imagine two or three years in a space like that, a small, dark cave, never being able to shave, never being able to wash, never being able to cl- change your clothes, the only outside interaction you get is people coming to harm you. And so that, that destroys the human psyche and puts people in a really weird place. Well, the story continues that uh, Navy SEALs ended up showing up at this camp and taking over this camp, and they discovered this prison of American citizens who were trapped in this prison. And and they burst into the prison, they opened the door, and they leaned in through the door into this dark, smelly, disgusting cave where these people had been held captive for years. And they started calling out to them, "We're, we're Navy SEALs, we're here to rescue you, you can come out. No one came out. And they kept calling, we're Navy SEALs, you're rescued, it's okay, your captors are gone, come on out to us. Because no one wanted to crawl in that gross prison, no one came out. Finally, one of the Navy SEALs just quietly made his way in, crawled in through the, the mess and the stink and the dampness. And he just came up to a guy who was sitting huddled with his knees up to his chest, And the story says that the Navy SEAL just came up to him, didn't say a word, just sat right next to him, body beside body, put his arm around him and just hugged him. Didn't say a word, just sat there holding him and holding him and holding him. And it doesn't say how long he did that, but I I imagine quite a number of minutes that he just sat there holding him. And eventually the guy beside him started to sob, started to look up. And as he looked and their eyes met, the Navy SEAL said, it's okay, we're here to rescue you. You can come out now. You're free. And at that point, the captive started to break down and his eyes lit up and he realized, we're free. I can come out of this prison now because the Navy SEAL went and sat with him and just held this dirty, stinky man and just loved him. And that's a picture of the incarnation. That's a picture of Jesus coming to earth. And that's a picture of how we need to minister to people. We don't come to them with this, well, we got it all figured out. We have the message. Let us tell you how you should do it, and then we go our own ways. We need to learn to crawl into the prisons, to crawl into the trenches of people's lives, put our arm around people and say, we're here to love you. We have good news, news that can set you free and bring you out of this prison. And that is what we see modeled in Jesus' life, a humble servanthood, that comes and joins people where they are at so that they may know the good news. And as we move quickly to the content of this mission, it's really important to remember that posture because the content of the mission in some ways had some harshness to it. And if that is brought across with pride rather than humility, with just shouting in the prison door rather than going in and wrapping your arms around prisoners, it can come across in the wrong way. So let's look at the content of the mission very quickly. It's found in verses 12 and 13. And these two verses, I think, too often get separated and they need to be brought together. And the content of the mission is two-part. The first is it was a message of repentance. We're told the disciples went and said, you need to repent. And secondly, it was uh, a display of the power of God's kingdom. People who were demon-possessed, demons were being cast out, and people who were sick were being healed. These two things, the message of repentance and the healing of people, The healing of human lives needs to always be brought together. The gospel, the message, the proclaimed message of repentance, and the evidence of God's kingdom healing human lives always needs to be kept together. In fact, I I actually as I thought about this, I thought, you know, to show people the riches of God's kingdom without pointing to the king is in the end sort of cruel. It's a little bit like taking a starving child to, to a door with a window in it of a locked room, and it's filled with nutritious food. And you say to the child, all this food can be yours. The child's eyes light up, brighten up, thinking he's going to get this food, and then you walk away and leave him at a locked door without opening it for him or giving him the key. It's insane. Why would you do that? None of us would. And yet it's what we do sometimes with the message of the kingdom. We talk all about displaying Jesus. All about let our lives just show people how great the kingdom life is. But a lot of times we shirk away from the message of repentance and saying to people, you need to know the king. And we try to display the kingdom and the kingdom's great and we should be displaying the kingdom. We should be talking about healed lives and showing the healing that Jesus brings to people. But if we never point to the king of the kingdom... People can never enter that life and the freedom that Jesus offers us. And so we always need to bring those together. When we're telling people how great the kingdom is, we need to point them to the king and say, you need to follow him. He is the one who can deal with everything in your life. And when we point to the king, we should also be displaying what the king does in terms of building his kingdom so that it's not just this harsh message of you better repent or else, but it's a message of follow the king Because he has the best for you and he wants to heal you and make you new. So bring those two always together. That is the content of the mission that we are to proclaim and live today. Very simple. Lastly, let's get to the story of Herod and John. Um, This is the expectations of the mission that we have. I want to take us back to some other gospel accounts to help us figure out what's going on in Mark. Because like I said, it's a, it's a weird passage that we're looking at here in some ways with this story just sort of stuck and sandwiched in the middle. But we actually, thankfully, in other gospel accounts, specifically Matthew 10 and Luke 10, have these other accounts of the 12 being sent out and another time where 70 or 72 were sent out in a very similar fashion. And we can learn some things from those accounts and those gospels to help us figure this one out. The first thing we learn in both accounts when the disciples were sent out in this manner, when they came back, they exclaimed how successful they had been. So we're told in other gospels that they come back to Jesus rejoicing because of everything that had happened when they went out on this mission. And in fact, Jesus exclaims to them that as you ministered, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so, in a manner of speaking, their mission... These little trips they went on and then returned to Jesus were very successful. Satan fell from the sky like lightning. The disciples saw amazing things happen, and the gospel was proclaimed with great popularity and success. But then when we look at each of the accounts in Matthew 10 and Luke 10, we see something very interesting. Following that success, Jesus always gives a warning. In Luke 10, he gives a warning about unrepentant cities. And he talks about these cities that will be worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah, who were destroyed by fire and brimstone in the Old Testament. And so it's like he's given a reality check to his disciples. You had great success, but there's also unrepentant cities, and it's not good for the unrepentant cities. And then in Matthew 10, right after they come back and it was a successful journey, Jesus says, That's great, but I want you to know persecution is going to come. And Jesus says to them, They call me Beelzebub, like the son of the devil what are they going to call you, my followers, the ones who keep going with this message? He says, surely you will be maligned and belittled as well because they did it to me. They're surely going to do it to you. Persecution will come. And that's what we see in the other gospels, in these accounts, when the disciples go out, they're successful, they're popular, they come back and Jesus gives these warnings. I think Mark is doing the exact same thing with the story of Herod and John the Baptist. He takes a unique approach to communicating the exact same message by sandwiching the going of the disciples and the coming of the disciples with John the Baptist, who was a preacher of repentance and who pointed to Jesus with his very life and was beheaded because of it. He points to him as a manner of saying to his disciples, persecution will come. Not everyone will repent. Not everyone will follow me. Now, there's a ton of interesting stuff going on with Herod and John the Baptist here. Uh, And I, I shared a little bit with you. One of the things was that Herod thought that John the Baptist was this holy and righteous man. And then Herod, hearing of Jesus, thought that Jesus was sort of the reincarnated, the risen from the dead, John the Baptist. And so if Herod, we can just sort of guess here, if Herod thought John the Baptist was holy and righteous... What was he thinking of this guy Jesus if he was the risen John the Baptist? He must have thought Jesus was pretty great as well, that he was holy, that he was righteous. And yet, we don't see anywhere in the Gospels or in historical accounts anything about Herod following Jesus or wanting to proclaim Jesus as the king of the Jews. In fact, Herod has a role in killing Jesus and mocking Jesus. And Herod, in fact, is the one who calls himself the king of the Jews. So you see this really interesting thing going on with Herod and his view of Jesus and how he still rejects Jesus' kingship, even though he sees him as righteous and holy, even the risen John the Baptist. He was wrong on that point, by the way. But it tells us a little bit about how Herod viewed things. Now, we don't have time to get into all of that today, so I want to wind us down here to a few simple questions that are all going to jump off of one big question for you that we've been driving towards here. And the big question is simple. Will you humbly take the message of repentance to those who need to hear it, whether it is popular or unpopular? So in the disciples' lives, we see some accounts of when they went with the message and it was popular. And everything was provided for them. They came back rejoicing. They were happy because they went with the message of the kingdom and it was good, and it was popular. But then history tells us something different about the end of all the disciples' lives. Out of the 12 disciples, 11 of them were killed because of that message. And John, the one who didn't get killed for his message, they tried to kill him. They boiled him alive in oil a couple times and didn't successfully kill him. All because of this message that was so popular here in the Gospels, but grew very unpopular with a group of people later. And yet Jesus says, I don't care whether it's popular, I don't care whether it's unpopular. I give you authority, I give you power, and I give you my call to go and bring this message to people who desperately need to hear it. And in our day and age where you watch the news, you hear what's going on in the Middle East, people being beheaded for their faith, we're told, it's a fairly fairly, uh, relevant message for us that says it's not just biblical times where people are beheaded for their faith. Now, we've got to shake ourselves a little bit because we're in Guelph. You can go out on the streets today and you can preach a message of repentance and call people to Jesus. You're probably not going to lose your head for it. But as you go to school, uh, as you're out in your workplaces, as you do go out on the streets and interact with people, it might make you unpopular if you talk about Jesus too much. It might make you unpopular to tell them there's, there's a king and you need to follow him. People might think you're crazy. It might make you unpopular to say you're a sinner and you need to repent and be made new. The the Gospels tell us and then Paul tells us that people are going to mock that message and think it's crazy. So the question is, will you still go? Will you still live a life for the kingdom? Will you still live the mission of Jesus out with all power and authority and with grace and humility? Will you say the king is here and he, he is Jesus? Will you tell your friends that even when your friends say you're crazy? Will you do it when it's popular and when it's unpopular? That's a big question. I want to leave you... I don't know how you... Matt said that sometimes you guys discuss things together. Is that true? Or, or is he just telling me stories? I don't know. Um, so what I'd love to, if there's a little bit of time here, I want to leave you with a few questions. Um, and you don't have to discuss all of these, but sort of jumping off of that big question, will you go? I find the big questions are too easy to just say, uh-huh, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, I'll do that. And then we walk out and we don't think about it again. So I want to think of some smaller questions here. So maybe you can get together at the end of this, I don't know, before or after music. I don't, I don't really care how you do it. But maybe you can talk about these things or maybe in your missional communities during the week. Maybe this first question, how can you better get in the trench or get in the prison with people in your life who need the gospel? Cuz we all have people, I hope in our life who need the gospel. And and I know I have people in my life who I pray that they would come to know Jesus, and yet when I really examine how I interact with them, I could do a way better job a lot of times at getting in the trench and loving them. But it takes energy, it takes sacrifice. To do that. So, how could you better get in the trench with someone who needs the gospel and love them where they're at? Maybe the flip side of that, maybe you were a person in the trench and someone crawled into that trench with you and loved you to Jesus. Maybe share that story with your missional community or with some people today and say, here's what Jesus did for me through someone climbing into prison with me and loving me. Uh, another couple questions Has there been a time you've not shared Jesus because you knew it would be unpopular? And maybe talk about what you learned from that or what you are learning from that because I think we all, when we're honest, we've been there, done that. We know there's someone who won't like the message so we just shut up and we keep quiet. Um, And then from that, what are your biggest fears around talking to others about Jesus openly? What sort of makes you tongue-tied? Because we've probably all been there before too where we can even talk about our church community. We can talk about our faith a bit. But there's something when it comes to proclaiming Jesus as king that sometimes just ties our tongue in knots and we don't know how to say it. What's your, what are the fears behind you in that that sort of keep you shut up sometimes? Talk about those and pray together about those. Um, and maybe share a time about a time when you did share Jesus even though you knew it might be unpopular. What was the result of that? And I'm not just looking for success stories. Maybe there was a time you shared Jesus and it was unpopular, and you got ridiculed, you got put down, and made to feel really stupid. I think we need to share those stories as well, to help each other and pray for each other. What was the result, and what did you learn from that? So I don't know, how, how do you want to do those with those questions? Is it better to leave those with your missional community? Someone can email them out or something. Sure. For the next six weeks, we're going to be in our missional community. We're going to be reading through stuff together. Yep. Perfect. Well, let's do that. I'll, I'll send them to him. Awesome. Well, let me pray for you guys. It's been a pleasure being here with you. I know it's a holiday weekend and a lot of people are gone and everything like that too. But uh, thanks for welcoming me in. I do feel at home here in a lot of ways and uh, it's good to be with you. We've had Matt a couple times with, with us and so I hope we'll find ways to partner as a community. But let me just pray a blessing on you guys. As we, as we were driving around while well, Addy was sleeping in the car, I was just driving around the neighborhoods just sort of praying quietly as we talked to And my wife and I have always sort of had a heart for Guelph as we've gotten to know it more and more. And we have uh, some people from our church who have purposely moved to Guelph from Georgetown feeling called here as well. Um, and we're partnering with some others in Guelph as well. So Guelph is on our heart too. So it's, it's been great. Being, share, being here to share with you. So join me in prayer. Father, first of all, we just want to acknowledge and thank you that uh, this city is your city. You are already at work here. You have plans for this city. Your spirit is moving in and out of neighborhoods and, and in and out of the shops here. We think of even the shopkeepers out here this morning who were having a bit of an argument. We pray that even in, in those scenarios, you would you would be working in people's lives to draw them to Jesus. I, I just want to pray for all the people here today and the people who are, are not here but represented by this community. And all the missional communities that are seeking to love their neighborhoods in a very real way, they've moved in to those trenches, those prisons. not not saying the neighborhoods are necessarily like that. But they're there, being the hands and feet of Jesus. And I pray that you would bless them. Would you provide everything that they need to keep going with the mission? When their own momentum might lag at times, when they grow tired, may they know the power and strength that comes through Jesus through the Holy Spirit within them. Bless them in Jesus' name. In the words of the psalmist, may you establish and bless the work of their hands. Yes, Lord, establish the work of their hands in Jesus' name and for your kingdom. Amen.